So if you have your Bibles, we are jumping right back into the verse, the singular verse that we were in last week, which is John 3.16, probably a somewhat familiar passage. And we are walking through the month of December and taking a peek behind the scenes of Christmas by looking at one verse. Uh, Because in John 3.16, which obviously most of us are aware of, and if you haven't, uh, in a moment you'll hear it and it'll probably sound somewhat familiar, uh, God gives us through Jesus' words a a behind-the-scenes picture of what Christmas is all about. And if you were here last week, we, we went through the first part of the verse, and we landed on the word love, for God so loved. And we talked about what God, God's love looks like, and that that's the primary motivation for Christmas, is that God loves people so much that he sent his son. And so we spent time in that. And then this week, we're going to land on another word. It's the word gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. So we're going to land on the word give because that shows for you and I, it demonstrates how God showed, shows his love to humanity. It wasn't that God somehow felt warm feelings or had nice thoughts. It's actually God took action. We'll talk about that this morning. Because love by its nature is not based on emotion or feeling or thought. It's based on something that moves us to action. If you heard last week, we talked a little bit about that. But if you think about understanding God's love, the fact that God shows his love through giving, it's the act of giving, it's action, that means that the way that we understand love comes when somebody does something for us. How many, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many times in your life has somebody said to you, I love you, and in your mind you're thinking, really? I don't seem to see it. You don't have to raise your hand, especially if you're sitting next to the person who said that to you, Okay. But why? Because love, apart from action, really isn't love. When my grandfather was uh, getting older and he had, uh, had gotten Parkinson's, and so we had to make the difficult decision to put him into an assisted living and then a convalescent kind of situation to care for him. And so when he went into that, Kim and I would visit him very often. And when we would go and visit him, I would, whatever I could do other than spending time with him, I would, I would clean his, you know, his hair and comb his hair and do his hair and, and shave him and different things, whatever we could do just to kind of spend time with him and be with him. And one time in particular, I think I've shared this before, but I was standing, he was sitting in this chair and I was just kind of brushing his hair and, and, I, and I just looked down at the top of his head. And this is, this is a man who had profound influence in my life. And, and, uh, and so it's hard, you know, you're, you're, but all these emotions are there. And, and, and so I said, Grandpa, I just want you to know, we, we sure love you. And I was feeling like almost welling up in tears. And no, you're, you're waiting for the normal response, which is, I love you too. That's not what he said. In his low, kind of gruff voice, he kind of cleared his throat and he said, prove it. And you're like, oh. Yeah, that wasn't like the warm fuzzies. They went out the window. That was gone in a hurry. And what he was saying is, in his situation was, the way that I know that you love me is when you demonstrate it by your actions. I've never been in the situation that he was at the end of his life, but being in a place when you're don't, you can't do anything for yourself, you're dependent on everybody else, when somebody says that they love you, what should come along with it is what? The actions to back it up. God obviously is love. He's the definition of love. Therefore, the way he shows his love to us is by his action towards us. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is that God so loved us, the world, that he gave his son, and we'll talk about what that looks like. Before we look at kind of some of the nuances of what it looks like for God to give his son, what it's implicit in this understanding, if God gave, there are some things that he didn't do. If he gave his son, which we'll talk about a little bit what that looks like, there's some things that you don't have to understand that sometimes I think that we kind of level some unfair judgments against God 
when, when his demonstration of love is through his giving of his son shows that he didn't do these things that we say he did. The first thing is this, is God didn't withhold his love. God didn't withhold his love. That means that God loves us so much that he doesn't hold back. And sometimes I think we're convinced that God does hold back. Paul wrote this in Romans 8.32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God didn't withhold his own son, and we'll talk about what that means, but if he didn't withhold Jesus from us, then there's nothing else that he's going to withhold from us. He's not going to hold back. We've been singing a song like over the last few weeks, and some of you heard the song. It's called Pieces, and it, the whole context of the song is describing God's love. And the chorus talks about how God doesn't give his heart in pieces. He doesn't give us sections or a percentage or a little bit at a time. He gives us all of his heart. And in the second part of the chorus, it says God doesn't hide himself to tease us. And it seems like in a worship song, you're talking about God being a tease. The context is this. So many times we perceive that God's playing games with our life that he's playing kind of hide-and-seek, and he's showing up every once in a while, and then he's backing off, and, and he's kind of playing games with us because like, if he was really good and he was really God, then he would always be where I want him to be, when he's supposed to be there, and doing what I want him to do. And when he's not, we think, okay, God, why are you playing games with me? Why are you doing this? Why are you saying that you're going to give all of yourself to me, but really you're only giving part of yourself to me? You're not investing all of who you are. Christmas demonstrates God was all in with us. It wasn't plan B, it wasn't the second option, it was plan A, this is how he would demonstrate his love. And the reason that it's so important for you and I to understand that, because to say that God plays games is to say that God really is a hypocrite. That God says one thing and then he does another. And this is important because in the nature of God, he can't be a hypocrite. Because he's genuine and real and authentic and he is love. But sometimes we, we wouldn't say the word, but we accuse him of that. He's playing with us. In fact, God so reacts strongly against that concept of being pretending, in fact, the word hypocrite, it's a Greek word that described an actor who would put a mask on and would portray a role that was different than who they truly were in real life. That God reacted so strongly, if you read through the first, or five, uh, five, six, and seven of Matthew, Jesus uses the term over and over again, hypocrite, which they knew what that meant, and he was describing the religious leaders of his day. And he obviously said a lot against hypocrisy because it was against the nature of God. And then if you get to Acts, and you get to Acts chapter 5, there's a whole other wild story that's still trying to get your brain around. The early church starts, and they're so committed to each other and what God's doing. The people are going out and selling their land, and they take the money, and they lay it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles would distribute it to people who had need. And it said they actually were a season in the church where nobody had need at all. And then you get to Acts chapter 5, and then there's a, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. If you've heard of them, you don't want to pattern your life after them. Because they did the same thing. They went and sold the land. And nowhere does it say in the scriptures that you were supposed to give all of the money to the apostles. But people happened to be doing that. But they obviously wanted to make it look like they were being super generous. So they gave a portion to the apostles, but they kept back some for themselves, making it look like they were giving all of it. And if you read through the story, Ananias comes in. And he dies, and then Sapphira comes in, and she dies. What an encouraging way to encourage people to come to church, right? What in the world was going on there? Was God just randomly deciding to take people's lives? No, part of that was that Jesus had spent so much time trying to root out the hypocrisy that had embedded itself in his people that when this thing called the church started, God says, oh, no, we're not doing that. 
We are not going back to the way Israel's lived for all this time as hypocrites. We're going we're gonna to read that out. And because it's so against God's nature to be a hypocrite, he took the lives of two people to prevent his church from going down the same road. Now, I share that because you and I need to understand God is not playing games with your life. God knows what he's doing, and God's love compels him to not withhold anything from us, to give himself fully to us. That means he's not holding back. He's not hiding. He's not coming to us at a little at a time. He's given all of who he is through his son, which leads to the second thing. That means that God also, he didn't withhold his love, and he didn't remain passive with his love. If he was willing to give his son, that means God is not absent. God is not indifferent to what we're going through. God is actually driven by his love on our behalf in our lives. First John chapter 4, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So just think about this for a moment. One of the things we need to do is just let some things settle in, and I'll talk more about this in a little bit of why it's so important. But God could easily have had this concept, which is, I'm going to create humanity. Good enough. I'm going to set the wheels in motion. I'm going to let creation kind of come to, to this place of being birthed, and then I'm just going to kind of step back and, and not, not really move because they're going to mess themselves up, and why is it my problem? I gave them life. They're going to have to figure it out on their own, and he could have just stepped back, but he didn't. He didn't remain passive. In fact, we're probably most of us are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, and in the story of the Good Samaritan, we know Jesus uses the analogy of a Samaritan to school the Jews on what it means to love your neighbor. And they didn't like that because Samaritans were half-breeds. But Jesus describes the story of a man who is going along a road and robbers, they, they stole from him, they beat him up, they left him for dead. And as the religious people went by one by one, none of them stopped to help him. They remained, what, indifferent and passive towards his suffering. And then the Samaritan comes along, and he's the only one that risks himself, actually invests himself, saves the man, puts him up in an inn, pays for his expenses, and then comes back to follow up on him. He's the only one that does that. Why is that story so significant? Obviously, Jesus used it for the context to say, this is what it means to love your neighbor. But you know who the Samaritan really is in that story? It's God himself. It's the God of the universe who looks at the condition of humanity in its brokenness and its sin and its isolation and says, I have to do something. I can't leave them on their own. Why? Because God's greatest desire is to be with us. And because of our sin and brokenness and our failure in the system we live in, it pushes us further and further and further away from him, which drives his love more and more and more to come after us, ultimately sending his son to come after us. That's the God that we serve. That's, that's who Jesus is. That's who the Father is. They, they're, they're on this mission to rescue mankind from itself, to reignite and reunite us with them in relationship. So if you and I understand that, that means that he's not withholding his love. He's not playing games. He's not passive in his love. He's actually coming after us. And also the third thing is God didn't play it safe with his love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through him uh, might become rich, and through his poverty. So just, uh, this is one of those verses. When Paul writes this, it's like one verse, but it's just this huge concept of what he's explaining. So just think about this for a moment. I know I don't want to get too heady and too theological, but just, just let this settle in for a moment. Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
He's not part God and part man. He is fully God and fully man. He has always existed. Okay? Understand this. He's plan A. He knows what's supposed to happen. The Father's sending Jesus into the world so that he can live the perfect life. He can die sacrificing for our sin. He can raise from the dead to conquer death so we can be with God. That's kind of the concept. But I want you to think about this for a moment. He is the God of the universe who has no limits. No limits. He has, in fact, what we can understand, you know, the body, the Bible talks about this thing. It doesn't use the term, but we use the term to describe it called the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three different gods, but one God in three persons. So understanding that, that the Godhead is what we would call it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, doesn't have a physical reality attached to it. Doesn't have a physical body that's a part of the equation. But Jesus, with the Father's sending him, decides in his divinity to intentionally limit himself on our behalf. This is what's crazy. The God of the universe has no limitation to him, makes a decision in one moment to be found contained in the body of a baby. Just anybody claustrophobic in this room? That's claustrophobia. Can you imagine not having any limitations whatsoever? And you intentionally choosing to limit yourself to what it means to be human. I mean, that's crazy. And, and from what we can understand, that means because Jesus lived a life as a human, although he was fully God, and then he died. And when he rose from the dead, what did Jesus have? He had what we would call a resurrected body. That means that there is a resurrected body attached to God. This wasn't just some little hocus pocus for 35 years. Jesus came and did his thing, went back, and everything's the same. No, no. We will experience the resurrection like Jesus experienced it, which means Jesus has a resurrected body. That means God has a body now. Is that crazy? He's chose that to be a part of who he is. Why? Because he did it on our behalf. He became poor so that we could become rich. Now, some of you think, man, that's way too heady for me, okay? God loves you, okay? Can you get that? God loves you. That's what it's just saying. Just, just let that settle in because as we move on, this is when we'll, we'll get to the end. This is one of those things where it's not like, okay, here's the three things you need to go out and do in serving Jesus. This is just listen to how much God loves us and then begin to realize when we understand the depth of God's love, it changes the way we live our lives. We don't change it. It just changes us because of our understanding of who he is. So what did God give us or who did God give us? We'll talk more about Jesus next week, but God didn't do these things, but what did he give what did he give us? There's four things I want to highlight, and they all kind of come off of a word that is embedded in this verse, which when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, or his only begotten, it's another term, it's the Greek word monogenes, which means basically the one and only, and we'll talk, we'll unpack that. That, that really describes who Jesus is, and that, with understanding that word will help us to understand exactly what God gave us. It isn't just a little nativity scene and you know everybody's well behaved and you know around the manger and that's kind of the picture of christmas what did what in that moment what was happening what was happening in that what was god doing for humanity the first thing is this obviously we're talking about jesus but god did give us his most unique so the concept of of only begotten means that jesus is one of a kind that means there's there's no other one like jesus there isn't a duplicate there isn't a copy he is one of a kind. There is nobody that's like him. You can't find something or someone to compare him to. There is no comparison. He's one of a kind. And because of that, we have to understand, Jesus even says it himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, we always use that verse to show how exclusive Christianity is, and it's true. Jesus is the only way to get to God. We understand that, but also what is embedded in that is the fact that there is nobody like Jesus. There isn't. There's a, a lot of imposters, there's a lot of things and people who claim to have that, but they don't. There's only one Jesus. There isn't another one like him. Listen to Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So he went from the garbage heap to the primary way of foundation. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's no one like him. And that's hard because we can always find a copy or a good imitation, but there isn't anything close to who Jesus is. Now, think about this. Now, all illustrations, all examples to just pale in comparison to who Jesus really is, but just go with me on this one, okay? Think about in your life something that you like because it's unique. It's the one-of-a-kind thing that you have. It might be a friendship. It might be a job. It might be something. Just, just think about that. What is that unique thing to you? And that's why it has value to it. And that's why when we think about Jesus, he is completely unique. And when we find something that is like nothing else, we always go back to that thing. Why? Because we can't find anything else like it. So again, this doesn't come close to who Jesus is. He's a lot bigger than this illustration, but can you go with me on this? Okay, Kim and I love, and our family, we love Mexican food. Okay, we, we go to Mexican food all the time. That's kind of one of the main things that we li like to do. And so uh, there's wonderful places in Southern California with Mexican food. Now, when we moved to Oregon, those who live in Oregon, and I, you have to, I talk about this all the time, and I'm sorry, all my friends in Oregon, if they listen to the podcast, they can all come and hate me for this, okay? When we got to Oregon, we moved into Newburgh, this little town outside of Portland. People in that city believed they had good Mexican food. And so when we got into town, we told them that we like Mexican, like, oh, you know, and every person we come to, this is the place you have to go to. So, okay, so we'd go, and we'd go, ah, nah, it's all right, but, you know, it's just a step above Taco Bell, so that's not really good. And then someone would go, oh, you went there? That's horrible. You should never go there. You should go to this place. And so five or six different places in town. And each time you go to them, like, yeah, I don't know. Some are like, I will never go in there again. It's like, ah, it's okay, but it's not that, you know. There's always something just not right. And I realized the reason why nothing in Newburgh could ever, ever be good enough is because we have a one and only. We have a one of a kind. Now, for Kim and I and our family, it's a place called Casa de Soria in Ventura. Anybody been there? I know Bob Brooks has been there. Debbie Brooks has been there. I, for us, that is like, oh, you know, the heaven's part, you are, you know, you've stepped in just short of heaven, because it's like the best, their chips and salsa are the best, there's nothing that comes close to that, nothing, and we've tried a lot, and so, in fact, I had people, they're not paying me for this, by the way, somebody came after, I'm gonna have to go to that, you know, that really sounds good, maybe I'll call them and say, hey, you might have a few people coming your way, right, but why, we, I couldn't find anything, why, because there was only one that was good enough, isn't it interesting in our lives, when we come to know Jesus, there's this amazing experience, like, wow, he isn't like anybody else. And then suddenly we get tempted. Maybe there's something better. So we wander off only to find out, oh, that's not any good. And then we come back to Jesus. Oh, that's why I came to him. That's what it's like. It's this, he's so unique. There's no one like him. So that saves us from having to wander to find something better than Jesus. You can't find anything better than Jesus. He is the ultimate. So then the second thing, he not only gives us his most unique, but the Father also gives us his most loved. So Jesus and the Father have this amazing relationship, this incredible relationship. In fact, it's described in John chapter 1, verse 18. 
It says, no one has ever seen God, but this one, uh, the one and the only Son, who himself is God, is the close, in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Father and the Son have this bond. In fact, we'll look at this moment. The, the Bible actually uses the term one. It's the same concept that's used to describe marriage, that bond, oneness. In uh, John uh, 3.36, says, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. There's this incredible that the Father's entrusted everything to Jesus because of the depth of the relationship. John 10.30, I and the Father are one, Jesus said. There's this deep bond. Why is that so significant? Because when you give away the closest thing to you, it's difficult and painful. It's one thing to give away something that is not important to you, is not close to you, is not loved. It's very difficult to give away something that is the most dear and closest thing to you, the person. And the reason that's so significant is because when we're in relationship, one of the, the most difficult parts of relationship when we're in love or we love somebody is being apart. It's isolation. It's the sting that we feel is in humanity. That's why Jesus is, is, has come and lived and died and rose from the dead. Why? Because apart from what Jesus did, we are isolated from God forever. And we don't do well with isolation. So in God giving his son, giving Jesus, what has to happen in order for us to truly be saved is that Jesus has to take on the sin of all humanity for all time in one moment on the cross. And in order for that to be accomplished, also this thing called separation has to happen. That on the cross, Jesus, because of the sin, not his own sin, he was perfect, but because of our sin, the father had to turn away. The father in, a, in that moment that almost felt, for, for Jesus, obviously, in the scope of eternity, this was significant that the Father and, and the Son are one, but in that moment, the Father has to turn away. And this is what's described in, in Mark 15, verse 34. It says, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just, can you imagine what would that would be like, the, the person who is the closest to you, the deepest bond in a moment, and it doesn't feel like a moment, it feels like an eternity, has to completely disconnect themselves from you in that moment. That, the pain that, mu that, must, that must feel like, that isolation. But that's what God was willing to do, and that's what Jesus obviously willingly did for us on our behalf. What is it like to, to take somebody that you love deeply and let them go? and be isolated from them. I, I, I had thought about this as I was just thinking through this, this concept and this word, and what does that mean? And I can't even come close. I can't come close to understanding what the Father and the Son had to experience in that. I can get a glimpse because I have a son. And it would be similar, but not even close to, but similar if Jordan came to me one day and said, Dad, there are people who are dying in Syria and Iraq at the hands of ISIS, and they need help. And apart from some, someone going and doing something to help them, they are going to perish. I want to go. And I would say, okay, son, I believe you should go. And I'm going to fund you and I'm going to support you, but I'm going to have to let you go. Now, we've seen in the news what happens to aid workers who go into Iraq and Syria these days. They end up on the Internet being killed by ISIS. So pretty much it's a death wish. It's a one-way ticket to what? Not ever coming back. So I'm just I was thinking this week, what if, that, what if Jordan came to me? What if that was the only way? Would I be willing to risk the isolation from my son? And for a moment, I think I felt one iota of what the father felt when the son was separated from him. 
See, understand, this is the context of love. God loves us so much that he would be willing, and the son would be willing, what, to experience that kind of isolation. Why? Because he loved us so much to take on our sin. So he's the most unique. He's also the most loved. And then the third thing, God gave us his most valuable. Jesus is the Father's greatest gift. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at the moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased or pleasured or happy or satisfied. Why is that so significant? This is the Father looking down on the Son and saying, This is my most valuable. This is my most precious. This is the one in whom I am pleased. The reason that's so significant is I think that's embedded in humanity. Every single child longs to have their parents look at them and say, I'm proud of you. All of us do. You may be a grown adult, and you look back to days when your parents did that, where you did something right, and mom and dad looked at you and said, I'm pleased. To this day, some of you as adults think about the need for that in your life and that never being answered to because mom and dad never said they were proud of you. The father saying to the son as a demonstration, this is my most valuable. This is the one who I take the most pride in. That is so important. I, watching Courtney and Jordan play sports, I know in them, and I know I felt it from my dad, one of the things that they want to hear the most is that that I thought they did good, or Kim thought they did well. Jordan played yesterday in a, in a tournament. It's a bummer they lost. Jordan played a great game, great game. And I remember at halftime, I yelled. He was coming over to the bench. He said, Jordan, and he looked up at me, and, and I gave him, yes, you're doing a great job. And there's a little smirk that came out the side of his mouth because you can't smile when you're on the court, right, because all the other guys are right there. But I knew, and it meant something to him because I knew it meant something to me when my dad would say it. Why? Because I look out on the court, and I talked about this last week. Who do I see when someone's playing basketball? I see Jordan. Who do I see when someone's playing lacrosse? It's Courtney. Why? Because they're my most valuable. They're the ones I care about the most. So the father looks down at the son and says, this is the one I'm most well-pleased. This is the one that's most valuable. For a moment, just think about what is the most valuable thing in your life? Not, hear me, not what should be, but what is. And that's the thing that if you know if it was gone tomorrow you'd have a hard time living. What is it? Is it your spouse? Is it your job? Is it your possessions? Is it another relationship? What is it? Can you imagine if that thing is gone? What does that feel like? Then we capture a, a, just for a moment what the father felt towards the son when they experienced that in that relationship. The most valuable thing. The only thing I can come close to with that is Courtney and Jordan and Kim most valuable things in the world to me. What would life, I've often sat and just think, what would it be like if I lost Kim? What would it be life like if Jordan or Courtney, and now that they're a little older and they're driving, I, I, as a dad, I'm like, what if they got in an accident? What if they died? And I know it's kind of morbid, but just thinking what that would feel like. And I don't want to stay there for very long. Some, some of you have lost kids or you've lost a spouse and the pain that you feel. Why? Because that person was so valuable to you. Now you begin to tap into God's love for humanity, that he would be willing to put his most valuable on the line for us. That's how deep and profound his love is. And then the final thing I wanted to spend a little time talking about is that ultimately God gave us his one and only son. 
This is important. Jesus is the one son the Father has. He's not one of many. He's one of one. And this is important. He didn't have more and just threw one to us. He had one and he gave one. His one and only. Think about that. How much does somebody have to love you to be willing to give the one and only they have of something? That's incredible love. They don't have a backup plan. They don't have another one. They don't have a line of ones they can just keep replacing. They just have one. The Father had one Son in Jesus, and He gave Jesus to us. Think about in our own lives what that looks like. Now, I want to just take a couple minutes. What does that mean? If God only has Jesus and He gives Jesus, what does that mean? Now, again, I don't want to get heady and too theological, but just follow me with, with this. Jesus was not created. Jesus is God. He has always been. He always will be. So he's not a created being. So when, you're, when you are created and say, so God the creator didn't create his son. His son has always existed with him. So that means that if you give the one and only non-created thing that you have, you can't replace them with a creation. So when God offers the son, he can't just create another one. Because Jesus has always existed. He's unique. He's the one and only. He's not created. He's always been. Does that settle in for a moment? There isn't another one. It's not like, okay, well, let's just create another one. Let's send him down. No, it doesn't work that way. You can't create another Jesus. There's only one. And God said, I willingly give him to you. Jesus doesn't have a pantry full of sons. It says, okay, I have a hundred. Let's try with one. And now let's go with two. And now let's go with three. No, there was one. He opened the cupboard, and there's Jesus, and that's it. Now the cupboard's bare because Jesus has gone to die for our sin. Just to let that settle in, just one, that's all he had. That means if he's the only one, that means that he is the best because there is no comparison to him. It wasn't like, you know, can you imagine Jesus had two sons, and he's like, ah, which one's my favorite? I'll keep them back. I'll let the other one go. No, there is no comparison because there's only one. That wasn't the, the conversation that God had with himself. There's no comparison. That means that Jesus is the most sacrificial, painful, and difficult gift the Father could ever give because he doesn't have a replacement for him. That means he loved us so much that he gave up the most valuable thing for us. Now, why is this so important for you and I? In a moment, I'm going to have you close your eyes just to, to reflect on, on what I feel God was wanting us to respond to. The reason this is so significant and the series that we're going through is so important because sometimes our faith can be defined by what we do. And then when it becomes defined by what we do, we miss out on the fact that God chooses to accept us not because we perform well, but because he chooses to accept us because he loves us. That's his choice. And sometimes that changes the way we live more than here, go out and do these five things to follow Jesus better. Because when we live with the understanding that God actually loves me, not the little stupid cliche from Touched by an Angel, God loves you, and then the light comes on, and all that stuff. Sorry, I hated that show, okay? Because it becomes so kind of cliche. But if we really understand that the God of the universe loves us this much that he would give Jesus, knowing what he gave, that changes everything about the way I live my life. That means when I get up in the morning, I don't have to perform today. I don't have to earn. I, I get to be me. And as I live out my day, even in my sin and failure, God still loves me. 
That means I can't lose. Can you imagine what that's like? To know that God loves me every single day of my life, and he's demonstrated that through giving Jesus to, to me, and it, it had nothing to do with me and my ability. It wasn't though I got my act together and God said, okay, now I love you. Long before I was ever even a thought, God had always put, already put this in motion to demonstrate his love to me. It changes everything. Can you imagine, just for a moment, take a glimpse of your life. What would your life look like? How different would it be if you really lived in the reality that God loves you? Now, some of us that struggle because we use our parents as the lens to look at God, and we struggle with our parental relationships. So we go, how can God be good? This is how God can be good, that he would give us Jesus to love us this much. And I, I can't tell you how many people came to me in between services, and that was the thing for them. I struggle with the reality that God really loves me, and now I know he does. If we get that one settled, this thing called obedience becomes a lot easier because I'm not obeying God to get brownie points. I'm obeying God because he loves me. And even when I fail and I am disobedient, guess what? He still loves me and forgives me and welcomes me back into relationship with him. Let's go ahead and close our eyes. I just want you to focus for a moment on what God may be wanting you to respond to today. So I, I don't pretend to know the context of your life right now. I don't read minds. I know the Holy Spirit is at work in people's hearts and minds right now. So I know that for, for some here today that you are here maybe because there was a cute little kid up on stage earlier that brought you here or maybe a friend invited you or maybe there's something in you that has drawn you to be here today. But I want you to know that God is wanting to speak very clearly to you. And he's wanting you to hear, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the first time with clarity, I love you. He wants that to settle in on, and he has done all that he has done through Christmas, through Easter, through Good Friday and the crucifixion to demonstrate through Jesus how much he loves you. And that kind of love is not the kind of love that we can just know and then suddenly not respond to. It's the kind of love that causes us to want to respond to. And so if you're here and you've, you've never understood the depth of God's love, that, that God loved us so much that he thought of you when Jesus came into the world and knowing that the only way that you and I would ever be able to be with God in his presence, in a relationship, in the experience, what he created us for was that we had to deal with our sin and brokenness, our desire to be our own God, which continues to isolate us from who God really is. That's why Jesus came, so that in that moment of his death, he took on all our efforts to be our own God and all our failures and all our brokenness and all the things of our world all the, the diseases and all the destruction and all the terrorism, all the hatred and all the things that is, makes up the world that we've created because we try to be our own God. And in that moment, Jesus took all of it on himself. So once and for all, he crushed it, he forgave it, he paid for it. So that now, now we can experience what it is to be with God. To follow Jesus means we die to our old way of living and as Jesus did, we rise to a new life 
that is now the life that we are created to live. If that's honestly what you desire, you desire that new life as you choose to follow Jesus, then you can have that today. And I'm gonna ask you to do something simple. You're not gonna respond to me. I'm not gonna have you stand or raise your hand or even walk forward. I'm gonna have you skip all of that and go right to the source. I want you to begin to pray. Prayer is a simple conversation between you and God. And trust me, God hears you. You right now begin to ask God, tell him, I am done with being my own God and living my own way. I want to experience the fullness of your love through what Jesus has done for me. Just begin to tell him that. And in that, what you're doing is you are making a commitment to no longer live that way you used to live where you're God, but you are now allowing Jesus to be God over your life and cover you. And then you choose to follow him as you understand the depth of God's love. Before I pray and close for others that are here, that you may have been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you've slipped back into some old religious patterns and you've been living under legalism and you've been striving to be a better person and you've been judgmental and legalistic even towards others, but you know today something is breaking in you. You are being reminded again that God loves you profoundly and has chosen to accept you and bring you into his family because what Jesus has done for you. And although that might sound cliche and familiar to you, that somewhere in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you have forgotten about. And God, this Christmas reminds you how much he loves you and desires to be with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you Thank you that you were willing to live out the will of the Father, that you were willing to come and attach to yourself this human existence and to live that out in a perfect way so that we could see what life's supposed to look like, but then even going to the cross as a perfect sacrifice, not because of your sin, but because of ours, that you were willing to die for us. And then because of your perfection, death could not hold you because sin had been dealt with and you rose from the dead and then we get the promise of that kind of reality, a life with you, a death to ourselves and a resurrection to true, truly living and truly experiencing God's love. So Lord, let that settle in on us today. Let us live differently. Lord, when we wake up tomorrow morning, would you remind us again how profound your love is in us and for us so that we begin to see our lives differently. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.